Amen. You guys can go ahead and turn, if you will, if you've got a Bible, to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to be back in Genesis chapter 1 this week. We're going to look at the last part of the chapter, verses 26 to 31. <clears throat> My junior year in college, I encountered the work of Princeton ethicist and philosopher Peter Singer. Maybe you guys have heard of Peter Singer. He has been called by some the most important living philosopher. By others, he's been called the most dangerous man alive. It's not often that some academic gets called dangerous. We like to think of ourselves that way, some sort of as if we had ideas that could actually change something. Peter Singer's ideas are actually dangerous, according to some of his critics. He's famous for this book that he wrote in 1975, I think it was, on animal liberation. It's a book that helped to spark the animal rights movement. Uh, groups like PETA have used his ideas to ground and to give support for their activism. Then a couple years later, he wrote a book called Practical Ethics. And he applied some of the same ideas about animal liberation to, to humans. Here's what Peter Singer is known for. Here's why he's so controversial. According to Singer, who works from a very secular perspective on the nature of the world and where it came from, and, and therefore the nature of humans and animals and the, and the things that are in the world. Working from those principles, from that place, according to Singer, a life that's worth protecting is measured by self-consciousness. If the life is to be worth protecting, you've got to have some sort of self-consciousness, some awareness of yourself. And, and it's measured best, he thinks, by pain. If you're able to experience pain, then you've got to varying degrees, what he calls personhood. Now, as you can imagine, many animals, what we would call animals, animals besides humans, qualify. Pigs, cows, he even says lab rats qualify. They're persons because they have an ability to interact with the world with self-consciousness and experience pain. Many humans, on the other hand, don't qualify. He points to some infants, to some who are severely disabled, to some of the aged who have lost the ability, the capacity to function in the way that, that he claims a full human person would function. So some non-human species are persons, some within the human species not persons. Now, according to Singer, to privilege human life, to treat human life as if it's sacred in a way that others aren't, is, is to be guilty of something that's barely removed from racism. He calls it speciesism. He claims there's no secular basis for protecting one sort of animal life and not another sort of animal life unless you go to something like personhood, how they experience things. So as an activist for the poor and against the torture of animals in food production, he seems to care deeply for life. Singer's not some ivory tower philosopher who just sits in his office and talks to students about these things and publishes books and gives papers at conferences. He's, he's an activist. He's done public demonstrations against some of the things that he feels are really, really unfortunate. So it's not, it's not like it doesn't matter to him. It's just that he believes that extinguishing some forms of life, like the severely disabled who cost thousands and thousands of dollars to care for them when their life, he claims, is not one worth living would enhance the life and happiness of others who actually are persons but who are so poor that they can't live life to its fullest. So the ethical thing to do is to take the resources from the non-person and give it to the person. 
That's the kind of basis an ethical decision should rest on. How can you maximize happiness for persons? Now, most of us who don't get paid to think ourselves into corners like the singer does know instinctively that this can't be right. There's something deeply wrong about this, that it seems eerily similar to the same kind of justifications that any, any act of genocide rests on, that some lives are worth protecting, other lives aren't worth protecting, and we're doing the world a favor by extinguishing the lives not worth protecting. And ultimately, Peter Singer himself knows instinctively that this can't be right. There's a New Yorker article about him about 10 years ago when he first moved to the U.S. from Australia, interviewed him for, and, and lived with him for a week or two, and discovered that his mother has Alzheimer's. And when his mother got Alzheimer's, according to his theory, when she had progressed to the point that she is now, ethically, the resources needed to preserve her life as a non-person are, are wasted, where they could be better spent eradicating AIDS in Africa or, or, or getting rid of poverty worldwide. But he admits, and this is a quote from the article, that it's different when it's your mother. I think Peter Singer knows what we all know by instinct, that there is something that's different about human life when we compare it to the lives of other species. But why? Why is Peter Singer so wrong? The fact is he's just reasoning based on assumptions that are shared by far more people than would actually be comfortable with where he ends up. He's not basing his ideas on ideas that no one else holds. The basis is shared by probably most people in the academy where he works. So the question is, is there anything different about humanity? Is there something that's worth protecting even when we don't protect other forms of life? And is it true that this thing applies to all humans or only to some humans? Well, this is a question that Christians have been answering for a long time. Christians have a solid and clear answer, and it's an answer that's rooted in our text for today. Humans, the answer for Christians, is that humans are unique among the species of animals because humans alone are created in the image of God. Now, figuring out exactly what it is that, 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 that is included in that image is really tricky. The text does just sort of says humans are created in God's image and doesn't say, and here's what it means that they're created in God's image. Now, that hasn't stopped Christian theologians from spilling a lot of ink trying to explain what the image of God is. And some of the most popular ones maybe you've heard, things like reason or the ability to relate, to love with each other, to communicate in complex ways. That shows us what God is like, and so therefore that's what the image of God is. I think it's fine to think of any of those sorts of abilities as part of the image of God, things that set us apart from other species in God's creation. But what I want to do today, since the text doesn't really get us into that kind of detail, since we'd have to speculate to, get, to go there from our text today, I want to focus on what it does say. What I want to focus on is what we can say with confidence about the implications of this very special idea. It's clear enough that Genesis believes humans are set apart, that they're unique among God's creatures, and that the reason they're unique is that they're created in God's image. But how? In what ways are they unique? And I see three different ways coming out of this text this morning. They're unique because it gives them a unique dignity. It gives them a unique responsibility, and it gives them a unique accountability. That's where we're headed this morning. Would you mind standing with me as we read from God's Word? This is the Word of the Lord, 
from Genesis chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to every, everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw that he had everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. This is God's word. You can be seated. So the image of God, first of all, gives us, as humans, a unique dignity. I think that the unique dignity of humanity among God's creations is one of the most central features of all of Genesis 1. That the whole account that we looked at last week, this, this hymn written in beautiful poetic symbolism, culminates. It's all moving towards the creation of humanity. Lots of features of the text point that direction. There's the fact that it's set off in a different way from the other things that have been reported so far in this chapter. Up to this point, there's been pretty rhythmic language. The sort, same sorts of things are said about, and, and the same detail is given about just about everything that God creates until we get to the creation of humanity. And then all of a sudden, the tone shifts and the detail level shifts. And we have God not just speaking something into existence, but deliberating mysteriously about what, they're, what He is going to do. We have even have this plural used. God says, let us make man. And Christians have typically seen there an early foreshadowing of the notion of the Trinity, that in God there is one, but also many. We have God deliberating about this creation. It sets it off from what's come before. The level of detail is different. I mean, look at how many verses are given to, to this creation of, of humankind. We have beginning of verse 26, and then it really goes all the way through verse 28 before God ends up describing what he's already made. He blesses them in a way that he hasn't blessed earlier creation. All of these details show that this is something that's new and unique, that humanity is different among the things that God has made. More, more than anything else, it's the fact that he labels this piece of his creation as made in his image. Up until this point, it's about filling up the pieces of the earth that he's brought form to. Out of the chaos, God orders everything. He separates light and darkness. He separates water from water with a, a sky in between. And he separates land from water. And then he fills up those things that he's ordered in that way. Up until then, it's just been about filling those things up. When he gets to humanity, he says something is missing. The implication is something's missing in what's already been made. What we need to do is make something new in our likeness. It's the image of God that sets them apart. We talked about 
Last week we talked about all of creation is good. That God is able to say that when he's done creating. He's able to say it's good because fundamentally it reflects him. He is good and he is seen. His wisdom, his creativity, his power, his ability to command beautiful things into existence. It's, it reflects something about his character. But that's especially true of humankind. Those things point to God. They're good because they reflect him, but... But humankind is somehow mysteriously in his image in a way that nothing else is. There's a poem, another feature. There's, there's a poem to this creative act, a poem within the poem, verse 27. It's, it's not giving us any new information. It's just celebrating it in a new and rhythmic, poetic way. All of these, all of these features culminating in verse, 20, in verse 31 where he says that now this is very good, where everything else is good. All of these features point towards a crescendo with the creation of humankind. It's different, according to this text, and that has everything to do with the image of God. I think one of the best ways to see why this is such an important account of of why humans matter is to compare it to accounts at the time this one was written and to compare it and its implications with accounts that we could see today of of where humans come from and, and why humans matter. So when it was written at the time, the most popular and still surviving account of the, of the creation of the world is one I mentioned last week called the Enuma Elish. It's a Babylonian account. And it described the, the world's origins as a, the result of this battle between two gods. There were two gods who attracted to themselves other gods who were on their sides, and they had this huge war. And one god defeats the other and uses the body of the slain god to create everything that is. He cuts the body in half and uses part for the sky and part for the earth. The origins of humanity in this account, the Enuma Elish, are really similar to that. According to this account, the God who wins, a God called Marduk, condemns the gods who had sided with his opponent to serve as the custodians of the earth. He condemns them to serve as slaves, basically, in this account. And they don't like it. And they kick up a fuss about it. And so he takes the body of one of these other gods who was slain, one of the unsuccessful rebel gods, and he decides he's going to make humanity out of the body of this god. Let me read to you the account. This is a a little tiny piece from the account where he's actually forming humankind out of the body of this fallen god. And, And pay really close attention to why he's forming humankind. Arteries I will not, the account reads, and bring bones into being. I will create Lulu, man be his name. I will form Lulu, man. And get this, this is why. Let him be burdened with the toil of the gods, that they may freely breathe. They bound him, the unsuccessful god, Kingu, the one who had been killed, inflicted penalty on him, severed his arteries, and from his blood he formed mankind, imposed toil on man, set the gods free. There's the account. This is the most popular account that Genesis was seen as a contrast to. You can see how obviously different the origins of humankind and the significance of humankind are when you compare them to Israel's neighbors. Far from an afterthought like they are in this account where everything exists, but somebody's not quite happy, so we're going to create someone else to to fill the role of of slave for the gods. Far from an afterthought like they are in in this account, the Genesis account presents humankind as the culmination, as, as kind of the point of all of creation. It all points directly towards that one moment. Far from 
acting as slaves on behalf of the gods, humankind is entrusted with responsibility to serve as God's delegates. I'm going to say more about that in a minute. It describes, basically, bottom line is, compared to its contemporaries, the Genesis account gives unheard of significance to humanity and ascribes it to all humans equally, and that was radical in its time. But maybe what we need to focus even more on, what I want to spend quite a few minutes on here, is that that's a radical statement even in our day. It was radical when it first appeared compared to Israel's neighbors, and it's, it's radical now. The implications of the claim that all humans have unique significance are drastic and they're far-reaching. Let me give you a few examples. First, if human life is what Genesis 1 claims human life is, and that's based on the image of God, then it means that all human life is sacred and worth protecting from conception to the grave. Later on in Genesis, this is exactly what the, the author says. After the story of Noah, the flood story, where God makes a covenant with those who would survive the flood, never to do it again, and begins to give them some stipulations on how they're to live with each other, he specifically singles out murder. In Genesis chapter 9, he says, If someone kills another, they are to be punished because killing another human is to kill someone made in God's image. That's his argument. He roots the significance of human life and why it should be protected in the image of God. Now, I'm fully aware that today issues of abortion and euthanasia are very murky at the margins, that they're political hot rods, and I'm not saying that there's an indisputable, clear line that connects this principle of God's image to how you should vote, your political responsibilities, what policies you should support. What I am saying is that the moral principle here couldn't be more clear. What I am saying is that without this sacred justification for why humans matter in a unique way, if we're left to a secular definition of what human life is and why it is or isn't important, you've got some real problems that are hard to deal with. You've got the problem, for instance, without the image of God, on a purely secular view, you've got the problem... That if you're honest with yourself, human rights are, is an empty concept. It's an empty concept. Here's what I mean. You have to admit, I think, on a secular view, that humans are not distinguishable naturalistically from the rest of the animal world. That's what Peter Singer says. I think you have to be consistent. You have to go with Singer there. You'd have to admit that the survival of the fittest concept applies to human relationships. It applies to society in the same way that it applies to anything you can measure under a microscope. And you could try to say, and many do try to say, that we establish rights by the majority, that we decide that if we're going to survive as humans, we got to understand and, and, and agree collectively that we're not going to let certain things happen and that, therefore, the will of the majority establishes these rights. You could try to say that, but if that's what you say, you've got nothing to say to the majorities like the Nazis or the Sudanese who are committing these acts of genocide by the will of the majority. They have decided they're not going to confer these rights. And on a naturalistic view, I don't see how you can complain about that. I think we assume, I think we have to assume, to make sense of the world and to live in the way that we do live, we have to assume that there are rights that are unshakable, that are not granted by law. It's not just that we agree to give people these rights, but they're, they're in us. They're necessary and law just acknowledges them. It doesn't give them. To borrow language from our declaration, they're inalienable. And they're inalienable because they're given to us by God. Without a God to establish those rights at creation, 
then it's he said, she said, may the best man win. That's an implication that philosophers are realizing is almost unavoidable. I've mentioned Singer. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, quotes another guy, a professor at Yale named Arthur Leff. He admits that there's no logical way to establish rights on a secular basis, and we can't. And he admits that we really can't live that way, as if that's true. Here's a quote from Leff. As he puts it, As things are now, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, so in theory, everything's up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. There is such a thing as evil. And he concludes, all together now, says who? God help us. That's his conclusion. We know it's true, but who's to say? Apart from the inherent dignity that's granted by God and that's applied to all humans, no matter their weakness, the concept of rights that we assume, that we take for granted, and to some degree fight for is an empty one. I do not mean to say that people like Peter Singer live in light of the, of, of the implications of their views. Peter Singer, as I've said, is a, an activist for human rights. I just mean to say that he doesn't have a good reason to be, that he's inconsistent when he is. Even if we were to concede that human rights should be acknowledged, remember we're saying without the image of God, human rights is an empty concept. Even though if we could just agree to all, if we could just agree that human rights does matter, that it's a worthwhile category. Without the image of God, I don't think we've got a foundation for viewing all life as sacred. And we're stuck without the ability to say what qualifies as a human life to be granted rights. We can't distinguish without the image of God what is human and worth protecting and what isn't. For example, some slaveholders and politicians during the era of American slavery, for them, skin color determined the quality of life and the worthiness of your rights. For Hitler and his guys, it was Aryan bloodlines. According to the Roe v. Wade decision back in the 70s, it's the ability for uh, an infant to survive on its own. It's viability. But apart from the image of God as present in all human life, as giving dignity to all, the best you can do is define human life based on capacities on what that life is able to do. Can that life feel pain? Can that life reason? To make that kind of decision about what qualifies as human life and what doesn't is arbitrary. It tends to read into that situation what we find to make up for a happy life. And if they can't do the things that we do, like eat good food or enjoy a good movie or or whatever, then then it can't be a happy life and we, we shouldn't protect it. You have to argue based on capacities, and that's arbitrary. The image of God alone supplies a foundation for protecting all life as sacred. There are other implications. I think that's the biggest one. The image of God gives us a dignity that makes all life worth protecting. But there are a couple other implications. If the image of God gives us this dignity, then secondly, it also undermines racism and classism and all the other divisions that come so natural to us. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves and if we're honest when we read history, we know that humans very naturally define themselves based on what they're not. We look at other groups. We need other groups who are not like us so that we can say that isn't us and we're important and we're valuable because we don't do that or we are not that. That's just, it comes so naturally. 
for us to feel significant, we need some people who aren't significant. The image of God, the reality, the truth of the image of God, is a call to find significance and security, not in these sorts of contrasts, but in the fact that we've been made in God's image. To be secure, to find significance in the designs of our Creator, not in what we have that others don't have. And it's a call to grant to others the same dignity that we gratefully recognize in ourselves. It also colors how we talk to other people. Even groups that we're very different from, maybe groups that we disagree with on serious issues, maybe even groups that we think are identified based on sin, on their sinful lifestyle choices, the fact that they're made in the image of God means that when we relate to them, we relate to them as if they have dignity that is unshakable. It colors everything about how we speak to them. Finally, the fact that we bear this image, implications for today of the the truth of the image of God, the fact that, that we all bear this image gives a sacred quality to your service of other people. And that extends to all levels. That's all kinds of services. It's true. From helping your neighbors volunteering at the rescue mission, caring for your kids. But I'm especially thinking this morning of, of the many of you who work full-time giving care to other people. I know our congregation has a large percentage of people who work in medical care, who are involved in social work or in teaching, in these sorts of jobs that where your life is given to serving or caring for others in one way or the other. I get that in the moment, it can be pretty mundane. That the, the sorts of routine responsibilities that you have in jobs like that can sometimes take your focus, I'm sure, away from, from the higher calling that maybe led you to that line of work to begin with. But I think that in the image of God, you have a good, solid foundation for cutting through that mundane and reclaiming the sacred nature of what you do. You are serving people, no matter how flawed they are, no matter how angry they may make you, You're serving people who are made in God's image. What you're doing is worthwhile because you serve those made in God's image. Well, that is by far the longest and I think most significant point that we'll look at today from Genesis 1. Human life is sacred because of the dignity, the unique dignity that the image of God gives us. The second thing I want to say about the uniqueness given to us by the image of God from Genesis chapter 1, is that the image of God gives us a unique responsibility. The image of God gives a very unique responsibility. What the text says, the dominant meaning that I think it gives to the concept of of God's image is a responsibility to care for and cultivate creation as delegates of God, as people that God assigns to do this work on His behalf. That's the most important parallel in the time that this was written to that phrase, image of God. It's, it's a phrase that in, is closely mirrored in some of the writings of Israel's neighbors. And, and when it's used there, it's often used, as, uh, used for a king, for instance, who they believed ruled and maybe got to his position of power and authority because he bore the image of the gods. And therefore, the God, what it meant for him to have that image was to, to serve as an authority like the gods, but one that's more visible, that's more tangible, that's hands-on. In the nitty-gritty. This was a common view of kings, and it's the primary image that comes out in the details of Genesis chapter 1. As soon as God has said, we're going to make man in our image, verse 26, 
The next thing out of his mouth is that we're going to make him that way so he can have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing. And then after he's created, God speaks to what he's created. He blesses them. He tells them to fill the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, to scatter, in other words, as his delegates and to subdue and have dominion over his creation. I think we can think of it almost like a a, a standard image of authority. The image of God is an image of authority, like in our day, the presidential seal. You know, when, when a president is going to speak somewhere, he has to first, have to first, I only know this from watching the West Wing. I don't know if this is actually true, but I assume it is. They, they hang that seal on the podium before he gets there, and it shows that what's coming bears the authority. The image, it's the image of the authority of the one who's about to speak. Uh, a signet ring is maybe an older, even better example. The kings or emperors in ancient times would often have a ring that they would use that they would impress in wax and it would carry their authority as their image. If they wanted to extend their authority through someone else, they would give them the ring and let them use it to use it in the same way and it would carry their authority with them as an image. I think that's the primary thing we see coming out of Genesis chapter 1. So what is that responsibility for us? What does it mean? And I'm going to go ahead and start by addressing an objection that may be in your mind right now. Because a lot of times, Christians have gotten a bad rap for this kind of claim. As if Christians believe, and their, their holy books teach, that humans can do whatever they want to with the world. That they, they should be able to take it and exploit it and get as much as they can out of its resources, and, and that they're justified in that because God gave them the authority to. Now, a lot of that, I think, the, the rhetoric where it shows up is highly politicized and doesn't belong. It's not true. It's not accurate. But there's some truth to the fact that Christians in the past sometimes have used this rationale to exploit the earth in just that way. I think about, for instance, when the the New World was being colonized and people were coming over from Europe to expand into where we live now. One of the arguments that they made for why it was legitimate for them to take this land was that it hadn't been cultivated. They didn't see any fences. They didn't see any homes that were permanent. The peoples who lived here were, were migrants, and they, they farmed different places at different times based on the seasons. And, and, and to Europeanize, it looked like they weren't doing anything to improve the world. And Genesis chapter 1 says we've got we to gotta have dominion over it. We have to give it some shape. So we're going to do it. We're going to we're gonna, to be faithful where they failed. So there's some justification to that criticism of Christians, I think. But... But I don't think anyone can legitimately get that message out of Genesis chapter 1 for a couple reasons. I think in Genesis chapter 1 what we have is a model for the authority and care that we're to give for creation. The call to rule on behalf of God in God's image is a call to rule as God does. To rule modeled on the way that he rules the things that he's made. And one of the best images of God's rule of the things that he's made, I think, comes in the image of the shepherd. Think about Psalm 23, one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. It, it's, it's a hymn to God, a response to him as the shepherd who leads, not for his own exploitative benefit, but to get what's best out of the things that he's made and, and that he lovingly shepherds. If God's rule is a shepherd, if he cares for what he guides and doesn't use it for exploitation, then when we rule in his image, when we have dominion over the earth on his behalf, we're to do that, not exploiting it, but bringing out the best in it. 
we're to care for it, to cultivate it, to nurture it in a way that, that, that brings out its best. That's one reason. I think another reason that we can't find here in a justification for doing whatever we want to, that, that in fact we have exactly the opposite justification from this text, is that here we've got a solid rationale for care and cultivation of this world. And we've got a rationale here that I don't think secularists have. Let me say what I mean. I think it's the opposite view from the Christian view, the view of the secularists who believe that this world is, that the material world is, is all that it is and that it's gotten here, gotten this way through a series of accidental steps that are merely the result of circumstances, and that's, that, 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 that's all that there is, I don't see how you can have any real solid reason for caring for a world that came about in that way. It seems like you should, based on the laws of social Darwinism, as they were explained 100 years ago, you should do whatever you can to improve your own position, no matter what gets trampled in the meantime. I think the best you can come up with on that view is a self-interested argument that we don't want to destroy our habitat. If we want to make it, if we're going to survive as a civilization, we've got to protect the world or else we're doomed. But that's ultimately not a positive reason for, for protecting the world. It's a negative one. It's a what will happen if we don't do it is so drastic that we've got to protect the world. Christians, on the other hand, have a far more substantial and a far more positive reason for caring for and cultivating the earth. Christians believe, when they're consistent with themselves and faithful to texts like Genesis 1, they've got a beautiful reason for caring about the world because it's a God-given stewardship and responsibility, but also because it's worth protecting. It's worth protecting because it reflects the goodness of its maker. It's worth protecting because when we look at it, when we see it at its best, we see God in it. We don't worship it as God, but we legitimately see God in it. I think that the assignment to care for and cultivate God's creation, to act like his authorities or, or delegates in his place, also gives sacred meaning to all the things we do with our time when we do them well. It gives sacred meaning to your service for your family, for instance, to the to the the beauty of rearing children in spite of all of the diapers that you've got to change and all the spit you've got to clean up and all of the discipline issues that are going to drive you crazy. It gives, it gives sacred meaning to raising up new generations made in the image of God because our purpose on this earth is in part to fill it, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill it with new images of God who own that identity and are motivated by it. It gives sacred quality to your work. No matter what your job is, if you think carefully about it, I think you can connect it well to this call to have dominion over, to bring order to, to cultivate and bring the best out of the world. And it brings sacred quality for those of you who are the creative types. I don't understand you. I'm not one of you. I don't consider myself among you. But this is Nashville, so chances are... Even in a room this size, there are some of you who are artists of some sort. I think, this is, a, this is an inference, this isn't actually said in Genesis 1, but I think it's a safe inference, that when you create, you are imaging 
the beauty and the wisdom and the creativity of God himself. You are extending God's rule over the things that he's made by reproducing, almost reenacting his creative power. I think in the image of God and the responsibility, the unique responsibility it gives to us, we're to see our world as an extension or our, our role here, our ruling of it, as an extension or reflection of God's rule. And that gives us an incentive to create and to form beautiful things just as God has done. Finally, the image of God gives us unique accountability. On this last point, it's really only meant to point us forward to where we're headed. The reason that we're studying Genesis is that Genesis lays the foundation for the entire story of the Bible. This is a story, Genesis chapter 1, the end of it, that keeps growing and building on itself throughout the rest of the Bible storyline. Our, our kids in Sunday school have been studying about this, elementary kids. The whole Bible is one coherent story tied together by God's attempt to fix the problem that went wrong. But you can't understand the nature of the problem, something we're going to look at next week in depth, until you understand what was designed, until you understand what it, things, way, way, way things were supposed to be before things went wrong. And in Genesis 1, I think what we have is a clear explanation of the way that the world was designed to work. What we've seen so far is a story of a perfect creation, of a clear purpose and responsibility, especially for God's highest creation of humanity, and that he's given them everything they need to thrive under his authority. The the text goes on to say that God gave them all of these things for food. He has completely provided for them, and all that he asks is that they act as his images. In other words, that they respect his authority and only try to extend it that they refrain from trying to take his place. Being an image bearer is different from, from setting our own image up in place of God's. That's what he's called them to, to faithfulness as his subordinate, as his image. And I think what we see as we continue the story next week is that this is precisely where humans fall. The, I think one of the best ways to understand sin, the nature of it, is to see it in light of this primary responsibility in the image of God, to rule over creation not as emperors, but more like delegates or ambassadors. Sin is an unwillingness to accept this role as image bearer. It, it takes us from the position of delegates and puts us into the position of a usurper. We choose to do what we want, what gives us pleasure, what serves our interests, what would help us get ahead. We trade in the image of God that's built into us by creation for an alternate image, for something else that we want to serve or extend its influence in the world. I think that's why the Ten Commandments starts out with the command not to have any other gods before me and then don't make any images. My image is already there. It's in you. And you're supposed to serve as my image in the world, not replace me with some other alternate image. But that's exactly what happens over and over in the history of Israel. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, over and over In our own hearts and lives, we set up alternate images that guide how we think and that give us or promise to us a security that we're supposed to find only in God. We have traded in, in other words, God's image, the benefits of his image, for a cheap copy that's not trustworthy. And that, friends, is the beauty of Jesus' role. According to Paul, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In a new and even greater sense than we bear his image, Jesus bore his image. 
Jesus came here and did his Father's will perfectly. He perfectly existed in subordination to his Father's authority in the way that we didn't. And he showed us more than anything else could what God is like. We'd settled for cheap imitations so long through the effects of sin that it's difficult to see and appreciate the real thing. The cheap copy becomes our taste, what we want. It's like a kid who is raised on sun-kissed and doesn't have a taste for fresh-squeezed orange juice. That's what we've become. And the role of Jesus is to reintroduce to us the image as it should be, to set himself up as a as a sign pointing to what it looks like to exist in harmony with God's purposes as his creator. He comes in the image of the invisible God to reset our vision. He so perfectly reveals God's love and character. He so perfectly reveals the seriousness of sin and the fact that it takes him to his death if he is to make us right with God. And he calls us back to him, to submission to identify with him once again so that what it looks like to own the identity Jesus offers to us, again, from Paul, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And in being conformed to the image of Christ, we are restored to the full meaning. It's never fully gone, but we're more fully restored to the meaning of our creation in God's image. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed in the coming weeks. Will you pray with me? We acknowledge you this morning as the wise and powerful creator who speaks and has all things commanded come to be. We acknowledge you, Lord. We pray for more full and deeper acknowledgement of you as as our source, as the reason that we exist, as the only one who brought us to be and therefore the only one who has the right to tell us how to live. And we confess to you, Lord, that even created in your image, an image that lingers in us no matter how sinful we are, we have not, we have, we have failed to fully execute the responsibility of that image. We see our need for Jesus and pray you'd help us to see that need more clearly. What we pray for is that you would take our lives, that you would form them into his image and make us willing and joyful servants of your kingdom that includes this world that you have made. We ask that you would make us right and true rulers over it, that we would do it for your sake as your image and not for ours. We ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.